to this episode of the Women in Technology Spotlight Expert Talks. I'm stoked to have with me today Pat Muyo, who is a partner at SignWave. Hi, Pat. How are you today? Good, thank you. How are you doing? Good to be here. I'm really happy to have you here. Let's kick it off with a question about yourself. Who are you? So I am currently, as you mentioned, a general partner at SignWave Ventures, where we invest in early stage technology largely in the areas of computing, analytics, and cybersecurity. Before that, I worked for my first career at the U.S. intelligence community, which was where I first became a technologist and those areas, I was exposed to those areas of work. Before that, um, my degree work was all in philosophy, so I'm actually a liberal arts person to begin with, and I think that's interesting for people who are uh, pursuing tech careers to see that there's very, there's many paths into this uh, very exciting world. And then I'm a mother of one one daughter. I was a single parent while I was uh, raising her through the, while I was working at the government and um, living in New York and having a fine time with it. Great. And I love that you are, you know, one of those career switches, you know, Um, and the interesting thing is also, I've met so many women who are in tech now who initially did something completely different. So even I myself, I have a PhD in chemistry, I did not uh, study computer science. And this Mm -hmm. seems to be a, a topic that's quite common with women that our, you know, that at some point, we realized that something about technology is interesting, and we switch. What was your point? So I've always been interested in solving problems and um, uh, began to realize that technology was a very good way to do that. Um, technology can change the way we work, the way we, we think. Um, it just, if you want to recreate the world in a pragmatic way, I think working with technology is a very uh excellent way to achieve that. I'm not a political person or an activist or anything like that, but there are things that could be better and and I hope to make them so. Yeah, you touched on a really important topic that's also very close to my heart. I always feel that we need more women in tech. And actually, by the way, today was Girls' Day in Vienna, which means that we invite young women to, to come into our companies and show them what we do. And so this was one of the things I was also thinking about, you know, looking at these young faces, that those will be the ones who will be changing things in society with tech, hopefully. What was your career path? You said you're a liberal arts major, but what happened? So I originally was studying philosophy with the idea I'd be a professor, Uh, ended up getting somewhat disillusioned with the prospect of academics and was looking around for jobs. This was in the early 80s, before computer science was really its own separate discipline. So I had options that probably would be less available to liberal arts people now that the the education has become much more departmentalized. But anyhow, I I had this option uh, with the agency to to take on this job, which was an analytic role. And it it seemed exciting and uh, seemed like the logic and the thinking that I had learned in my liberal arts uh, background would be relevant there. And so, so I took that job thinking it was, you know, something I'd try out, not knowing it was the beginning of 30 years of a very happy and diverse career. Mm-hmm. So in that career, I started as a crypto analyst, which was breaking codes and which is something few people get the chance to do, and which is a very exciting uh, type of work to do. Moved on to a bunch of other analytic things, 
And obviously when you're working in some of these deep analysis, it, you can't do it by hand, right? Computing is, is the only way into figuring out these very complex systems, dealing with large uh, sets of data and so on. So I learned to program on my own and uh, began to use programming as an analytic tool and um, then became interested in, in computing in itself as a discipline and a way of working and a way of improving the, the way we did our jobs. Um, moved on to consider, you know, signals, do cybersecurity, so that sort of the content of the analytic work I was doing kind of changed over time, but but there was still always this um, background in, in analytics and figuring things out. Became a researcher, uh, became a leader of research groups, and began to realize that the government really needed to partner better with um, commercial sector and with academics to a lesser extent. And then it was very hard to do that from inside the government. The processes were very complicated. It was very hard for startups and other um, innovative people to figure out how to interact, understand the language, to have patience with the processes or whatever. So as I was looking around to leave the government, I uh, met my partner, Yinyu Suiza, who's the founding partner of SineWave. And you know, he was talking about this vision of setting up a venture firm that would invest in commercial companies with an eye to helping them get government customers to find their way into the government. I thought that was an excellent uh, way to try to solve this problem from the other direction. So joined into that, and that's where I am now. Well, that's such an interesting and actually quite a colorful career, and I'm totally in awe, actually. So, <laughs> so you're now in a venture capital firm, and you managed that some. Uh, you mentioned that some of the firms that you finance are are cybersecurity companies. Uh -huh. Cybersecurity for me is a big topic. I myself, I work in the cybersecurity space now, and um, I was wondering because you have this long history. You are working for the DoD, and then you know, um, being part of the this this uh, field. What do you feel has changed in cybersecurity? So it's been a long journey, and I think we have to recognize cybersecurity is still a relatively young field. Initially, I think the cybersecurity efforts were all at the large perimeter of the system, all attack-based, all looking at things from what's coming at me, from, from looking at them from the outside in and doing whack-a-mole on individual attack types and, and, and trying to knock them each down one by one. I think that was always a losing proposition and I think it's becoming apparent in the industry that it is. And there's certain starting to be more technology that I would call inward focus. You look at your own system, how is it set up? Uh, what kinds of policies are can be enforced by your own network controls? Uh, how can you manage identities in a way that's fine-grained enough to not have to let everybody see everything, but just have people uh, able to collaborate on their work for, with the data that they need, but not have to open up uh, every single data store to everyone to enable that kind of collaboration. So I think the change is generally in a positive direction uh, towards these more systemic and uh, internally based thing. And I actually have a, a hope or, or a vision that, that really managing cybersecurity will become a matter of how you manage your system and not an external concern that you add on after you've set up your network and your computing system and so on and so forth. 
I'm seeing small steps towards that, and maybe that's because I'm eagerly looking for them. Um, but hopefully, that's the direction that that uh, will continue to move forward. So I think one thing you're talking about is you know like this zero trust, and the other thing you're talking about is that you actually design security into your infrastructure mm-hmm. instead of just bolting it on afterwards. So. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing any interesting, you know, companies in that space, any new developments where you feel this could be something that makes sense? Yes, so I'm seeing a number of companies. Zero Trust is an area that there there are starting to be quite a few companies in, and some of them are quite profound. They're not just at the access to the system level, but they're one of the companies we're invested in called, can I say, it's called Operand is um, working at the application layer so that at each step you you can verify that the person or the piece of code or the device is allowed to do that action, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just you verify that Pat is allowed to be on this machine, but you verify as I'm running an application that this is an application I'm allowed to run. It's not now trying to escalate privilege or do something it's not uh, designed to do in its its, uh, correctly operating state. And that at the application layer, we are making sure that only the things we mean to let be done are being done. Similar company work at the network layer to do, again, uh, verify at each decision point that this is indeed something that could connect to something else. I think computing has gotten so fast that you can do these checks at multiple points in an execution or multiple points on a system without making the, without delaying the application in a way that you would have been the case if we tried these technologies even five years ago. Yeah, it's actually an interesting point because our systems are getting faster and uh, have more resources. And now we need these resources to actually make sure that we are safe. And this just reminded me of one thing I was asked today. We were talking about encryption, you know, and one of these young girls, uh, I think she was maybe 12 or 13, asked me, but why? Because we showed them, you know, how you can actually sniff a password if it's not encrypted. and and she asked but why would anyone ever send something unencrypted and that reminded me how you know the technology has uh-huh. changed and we now live in this completely different world where you know sending stuff just unencrypted doesn't make any sense and you would never do it but it also brings me to the question if it's not that we are you know building on technology that is from a time that is gone and it's actually not really fit for what we're doing or trying to do with this technology now I, I think that's actually a very good point. I think we are building a lot of band-aids on something that's just broken, but also that's something that um, we've moved beyond. Uh, we don't need to fix that old thing. We can do these new things uh, because the the type of computation, the mod, the comp- computing infrastructure has changed to the extent that it has, and. You see a lot of very, in my mind, inelegant or clunky solutions um, that happen because uh, people are still trying to start, you know, from the perimeter or the attacker's point of view or whatever, and and force it uh, to work uh, in a way that's uh, just not not likely to be successful. You're working from the point of least information, and and trying to do the job where it's the hardest rather than starting from the root and and working it that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. Another thing I was thinking about, or we are all thinking about really is, we are seeing this large talent gap, you know, so we can't find any people to work in, uh, not only in cybersecurity, but the whole field is, uh-huh. is barren. <laughs> so uh-huh. in terms of threats, which are not, you know, like technolo- uh-huh. technology, what do you see, you know, coming? Well, so I want to address the talent gap uh, question first and, and then get into possible other social threats. One of the things, one of the reasons I think there is a talent uh, gap is because we have started to define the criteria for these jobs too specifically and too check the box, too much certification base, too much you know, that there's a lot, the whole inventory of things you have to have accomplished to get this job. And I'm not sure the inventory is is well chosen. And I'm not sure it's an indicator of good success in that job. And this is where I put on my liberal arts hat and talk about the way the the thing that needs to be assessed in hiring people, particularly in areas like cybersecurity, is precisely analytic skills. It is thinking, it is critical thinking. And saying, oh, did you um, take the SANS course or did you have a CISSP certification does not necessarily ensure that you are a good critical thinker or or that you can perform in some of these roles. As technology is advancing, the roles in these fields are all becoming, they're moving up a level on the analytic stack. And they're not just, you know, sifting through one alert after another to find the alert that that looks like it's one you should worry about. They become um, higher level thinking. And I think that the the skills gap could be, the dynamics of at least could change. I don't know whether it could be lessened. If you start thinking of other uh, types of backgrounds as relevant to those roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the, the other, some of the other threats in the cybersecurity role world, I've become very interested in the problem of manipulating data and people messing with data or providing misinformation, providing deep fakes, providing edited kinds of pictures or whatever to to cause false conclusions false decisions um as a result and as the process goes on i think this data manipulation data provenance problem is one that has been under resourced to date and i think particularly now as ai becomes uh, much more powerful we need to make sure that we have ways of checking that the data we're feeding into these systems is legit and it it is had bias removed and it's a reflective of um, the authorship is assured and it hasn't been doctored and all of those kinds of things. And I think that's something that's going to become an increasing problem over time. So I think disinformation as as input into algorithms, but just disinformation in general. I think there's all sorts of, particularly in the United States, there's there's a lot of distrust among people. There's a lot of people taking very strong positions on 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 bad information and making decisions that you know in the case of COVID for many it was life or death by not you know not getting a vaccine because it's big government or whatever I don't know what the issue 
that. Mm. But so I think disinformation and 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 that is is a big issue. And the the sort of companion to that is obviously privacy. Yes, giving up your data gets you some good things. You know, I like that my shopping basket, they say, oh, you might like this. And the more accurate they are, the more I like it. But I think we at some point have to think about those trades and see, make a decision, not perhaps for each piece of data, but certainly for each type of data, whether it's, it's worth it to you to give that up. And, and I think systems need to start putting the controls in place that enable you to easily make those decisions and enforce them. Yeah, you touched on three things that are absolutely important. I mean, one thing with the skill gap, I, I totally agree. I think we're making it worse by looking for skills that we don't necessarily need. I mean, you are an example and a lot of women I know are an example that you can learn anything you want if you're interested and it doesn't really matter what is written on your degree, you know. So And um, then the whole topic of... of fake information, fake pictures, which has kind of accelerated, in my opinion, in the last couple of weeks, now that we have, or everyone seems to be accessing, you know, things like Mind Journey, we all saw the picture of the Pope and, and all these things. And of course, that was funny, but you can do things with these tools that weren't possible, not accessible to the common man. And one of the things I also talked about with someone this week was, you know, all these scam phishing mails you know mm -hmm. you could always tell that it was a phishing mail just by yeah, the grammar but yeah. this is going away because yeah. you can just use one of those tools to write a mail in whatever language and it sounds like it's written by by yeah. a human you know yeah. so these yeah. are it's just accelerating the problem of you know being able to discern what's real and what's not real and what's true and what's not true and I wonder how we are going to address uh, this and I think and that's my opinion I think it's it's all based in education really you know and again, this is when I get back to critical thinking as, as the skill um, mm -hmm. that people need to have. Um, and you're right, it is going to get harder. It was always easy to tell that this was, you know, something that's just not good English and, and people would not write it that way. Um, but now that's less true. And, and with the information that, that um, is easily gleaned about you online, you can put little details in there that can make um, a dedicated phishing message very very compelling and I think that is something that that is we're going to have to have solutions for in terms of technical solutions I actually think there isn't one to that problem and that the problem is to have controls elsewhere in the system that if you are phished you don't get any further than the initial password in and and you know recognize phishing as a fact of life um, but don't let it cause harm into your system uh, I, I, I hate to punt on anything like that but I think it's just too hard a language problem to solve phishing itself now that it's getting so complex. Absolutely. absolutely I agree this will always or will remain something that we cannot solve as you know phishing will not go away it would just get worse it's now smishing and you know voice fishing and, and all these things and I think you just mentioned something that I really forgot to touch on and that is the combination of the lack of privacy and these technologies because what you said was it's easy to get some personal detail about you and then include mm -hmm. that so mm -hmm. this is actually a topic I haven't really thought thank you for this because this is something <laughs> I haven't really thought about a lot. yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. Now's the time to be a fisher for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for these insights. But coming back to your journey, or maybe not your journey, but when you look back on your career, I mean, obviously, just like I do, you you enjoy working in the space. But if you think of young women starting out today, what would you recommend they do? You know, what would you your life tips be for a good career in tech? I think critical to a good career in tech is maintaining an interest in continuing to learn. You know, a lot of times people come out of school and the kind of learning you do there is not continuous, right? You learn the material, a body of material to, to pass an exam or, or whatever. But always being inquisitive and, and looking to the, the broader aspects of what you're working on, I think is a very, very important uh, aspect of a good technologist. Uh, again, I'll get to my critical thinking drama and beat on that because that's the key thing. I think though more concrete advice about working in the technical workplace, what I have found to be the biggest obstacle or barrier, I don't know if it's an the biggest problem that women face is that they tend to present information differently than men. They are they do not present if there's something that has a nuance or, a, you know, it's not 100% certain, they will present that. They will not confidently say, this is it, when they don't feel they're entitled to that. And that's, I think, correct and noble, but it's also not what men do. And so it's easy to look in the male eye as diffident or as unsure when really you're not. So having the confidence of your position, the fact you did your homework, you, you, you're, you know what you're talking about is very important to, 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 get, to, to make evident in, in your conversations in the workplace. And the flip side of that is the workplace, I and mean, people are not always going to agree with you. You're not always going to be right. And being able to speak in a conversation that's perhaps adversarial, but not hostile, without getting upset or, or without getting feeling attacked and, and recognizing that, that learning and advancements often come from this kind of conversational conflict is another thing that I, I think could help women in the workplace. So, yeah, I guess a little bit of that. That's very insightful. I love that you talked about this. I mean, I often get, you know, the usual be bold, uh, lifelong learning. You mentioned that. But, you know, just focusing on the differences in communication, if you work in a male-dominated field and understanding how men communicate and how you have to communicate if you want to make a career, I think that's one of the most important things you can learn early on to mm-hmm. progress yeah. yeah, because I think you get the labels very early on and then it's very hard to get rid of them. And I think what also happens is when you are in the system and then you don't progress because obviously um, you do things differently and you don't know what is happening, you might get frustrated. A lot of women leave. We also we also see that, right, that women tend to leave the space and we don't want that. We want them to stay and mm-hmm. we want them to be successful because we need them here. You talked about, mm-hmm. you know, the importance of having 
people intact to, because it's important for society. And in my opinion, especially having a diverse right. you know, community is so important. You talked about bias and data and all that. And same is true for all development. So yeah, thank you for, for mentioning communication and understanding the differences in communication between men and women. This has been very insightful. I had a great time talking to you, Pat. It's been lovely. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. I, I also enjoyed the conversation and really appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. <laughs>